99th episode is back to talk more Sandman. This time, we're talking about the Convergence storylines. So sit back and tune in. Yeah. Well, speaking of bouncing off the walls, we're, like you said, talking about Sandman again. We're talking about the Convergence stories in this episode, which are issues 38, 39, and 40, and also the Ramadan issue 50. Nice. I also read uh, uh, an issue that I thought was one of the individual stories that now I'm realizing was the beginning of the next podcast we'll do about Sandman. Okay. So well, that's actually... We don't need to talk about that, but I, I did extra reading. Well, it, it's actually kind of good because then you'll see there's one little plot element that's hinted at in these stories that you see kind of come to, or you see the consequences, the end of it in that first issue there. So uh, you being familiar with that will give us a little something to talk about. Interesting. All right. Yeah. All right. So for those playing at home, this is all in the Fables and Reflections trade paperback, but these were split between volumes two and three of my absolutes. And I think they were in volume three of your deluxe edition. Yes. Yeah. All right. Uh, So these um, the first three immediately follow a game of you and take place right in between there and the next big storyline, which is Brief Lives. But I'm excited to talk about these ones because the first story we're going to talk about is likely my favorite Sandman story. It's definitely my favorite standalone Sandman story of all of the, like, one and done single issue stories in throughout the series. This is definitely my favorite, and that is the hunt. And in this one, it's told as a story within a story where an old man is telling his granddaughter a story from the old country about a young man who comes across a peddler in the woods, and the peddler gives him an amulet with the picture of a beautiful woman who is the like duke's daughter or something like that so he goes on a journey to find this duke's daughter and on the way he meets uh, a, a number of people comes across plenty of people notably a woman who's another person from the old country of his people and they kind of compete in a hunt together but at the journey of his or at the conclusion of his journey, with the help of Morpheus himself, he finally gets to the bedchamber of the Duke, uh, sees her, and realizes, well, maybe this isn't what I want. And what I actually wanted was the woman that I met along the way here. And at the very end, in the shocking twist, we find out it's a true story, and it was actually a story of his youth. So first off, did you instantly get the Princess Bride vibe with this? Yeah, I did, especially this time reading it through. I don't think I quite did uh, in previous readings, but this time I I definitely got that. And I got a lot of, uh, there's a lot of goofiness in yeah. in those interactions between the grandfather and the granddaughter that I, I picked up on a lot this time. 
I wanted to make sure that the, that hit the same for everybody, and it wasn't just like Princess Bride is in my head. So, um, you know, I default went there, but. Well, I think the Princess Bride is probably one of the most well-known stories that follow this format of mm-hmm. an old guy telling a story to a young person where the young person's kind of like, uh, this story's lame at first and they don't really want to hear it. And then the old guy's like, okay, then I just won't tell it to you. You know, okay, I'll go by, <laughs> you know, are you, you little bratty kids just shut up and listen to my story. So yeah, it's very, very similar. Yeah. A little edgier. Like uh, if you interrupt me again, I'll rip your throat out. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and that actually uh, is interesting because throughout there's these little, sprinkles of hints of things that um, really point out one of the more shocking bits of this story, which is that so these people can turn into wolves and walk the earth as wolves. They're, They're not quite werewolves, right? It's not like a full moon thing. They can choose to change form into werewolves, but that's a big part of the story is that these old people can do that. And there's these little hints throughout, like when he says, I'll rip your throat out. That's a very wolfy thing to say. Mm-hmm. And then I think... I know, that that's what wolves always say to me. So. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. They're usually nicer to me, but, you know, I'm friends with the wolves. <laughs> and there's also another hint where he says, like, I can run on two legs as well as four, just as easily as four. And, um, you know, stuff like that is is sprinkled throughout that really kind of gives uh, uh hints of that turn that this this guy's actually pretty wolfy um another thing that i'll point out and i i looked into it a little more this time reading through just to be kind of prepared is that this is all like russian folklore type stuff mm-hmm. so he meets Baba Yaga, who is an evil witch that flies around in a flying mortar and pestle, lives in a, a hut on chicken legs, essentially just like what we got in here. I love Baba Yaga. I've seen Baba Yaga in so many different things. Hellboy, uh, Howl's Moving Castle, I think it was another one. Baba Yaga is, is very fun folklore. Yeah. And... The peddler lady mentions that she has the emerald heart of Koschi the Deathless, and Koschi is a uh, like an antagonist from Russian folklore, and he does hide his heart or his soul in various objects. That's one of the things he does. And later, I think it was either Lucian or Morpheus says, well, actually, I I think that his heart was kept in a duck egg. And that's actually like straight from the folklore. So there's a a lot of that. It it seemed like a lot of this story is kind of playing around with Russian folklore um, in a fun way, kind of similar to how other Sandman stories have borrowed from other mythologies around the world. Yeah, Uh, I like what the whole... You know, theme of the the grandfather telling the story, like the end of this, where he, like, you know, she kind of balks at the story. This is sexist and all that, and she's like, "All right, my fault. Thought you would enjoy it." And then as he walks out, he's like, "I wish you could have known your grandmother. Uh, she was an amazing woman. She knew the value of things, but she never let me forget that she had beaten me to the deer." And then the granddaughter's like, "Grandfather, like she? Oh, it must be real." I just think it's funny because it's like 
she didn't buy any of it. And then at the end, like the last little statement, she's like, oh, it was real because you said this thing. Like every other thing you said was not real. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That, that struck me as funny, like how easy it is to convince somebody of a story with like just with that one extra little detail. But it's just like, um, I mean, all throughout the story, he, he does stuff like that. You know, like, she has these things, and then the granddaughter's like, wow, how does she have these valuable things? <laughs> she doesn't really have them. Like, why would a peddler woman have these things? Yeah. Uh-huh. And the next minute, like, but they're real, you know? <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think that um, he addresses that where it, it, I think it hits on one of the big themes throughout the Sandman stories, which he says, look, just don't trust the storyteller, but trust the story. You know, it's like, it's, it's kind of like, it doesn't matter if it's accurate or not for it to be a true meaningful story. Yeah. And he, that's, I think a uh, theme that we've seen a lot throughout the Sandman stories. And, uh, like, I I think it was during the Midsummer Night's Dream that it really hit on that where somebody said "A, a story doesn't have to be accurate to be truthful or something like that, or it doesn't yeah, have to exactly. be like real to, to be truthful. And so I, I think like that's really one of the whole things is like what stories have meaning to us. And if a story has meaning, the meaning is valid in itself, even if it's based on a, a load of like folklore BS. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think there's a lot in the last story that we're going to talk about that, um, I can relate to this one. I'll, I'll save it to talk about when we get to the, the last one. But, um, but yeah, I mean, this one basically ends. Does not matter if it's true or not? Like it was a story. There's still things to be learned from it. And ultimately, you know, I think that it's, we decide that we want something based on minimal information and we ignore the things that are around us that are actually good. Uh, and then, when we get perspective, we realize what really matters. I think that's true in everybody's lives all the time. I mean, that's something that, you know, when stuff is tough, like I'll, I'll bring that up with, you know, with my wife or whatever, like putting things in perspective, like look at all these good things that we have just because this one thing isn't what, how we want it to be right now. doesn't mean that things aren't good. And yeah, I think that's ultimately is kind of what the story is about, you know? I mean, this easily could have ended with him. He turns away from everything that he was, and he doesn't get the opportunity to go back. This story ends with he just kind of goes back and resumes life the way he wanted it to be. Uh, or the way he was used to it being, I should say, not the way he wanted it to be. Um, when he realized that, you know, the amulet was just uh, just an idealistic portrayal of something that wasn't, you know, that that wasn't as grand as he thought it would be. Yeah, I I think to me what this story is really about is sometimes the things you think you want aren't what you really want. When you actually end up getting them, you may sometimes realize, oh, this doesn't really satisfy me like I thought it would. It reminds me of like people who win the lottery and then lose all the money because they just either just don't know how to be rich or can't handle being rich or you know any of those things it's like well I got what I thought I wanted and it's not actually helping you know yeah um and I I think that that's really what I see in this story is that he got what he wanted and he realized I don't think this is going to make me happy and what 
does make me happy is the thing, this other thing that I didn't think was the thing that was going to make me happy. Meaning, you know, the, the woman of his people that he had the wolfy hunt with, mm-hmm. that I think he realizes, well, that's what I really want and what actually satisfies me. So it's also kind of a lesson in not going with what you think you want, but instead going with what you actually respond to and paying attention to what has meaning for us rather than what we think should have meaning for us. Yeah. So it's the same thing we've talked about with collecting where we buy things because we think we want those things. But then oftentimes we never actually get around to the thing, to the point of having the things, using the things that we get that we want. And we just keep on pursuing the things that we think that we want. It's, it's just like this, you know, I mean, if he goes and realizes, no, I don't want this woman because like now that I've gotten here, it's, you know, I realize it doesn't match up with what I thought it would be. If he just goes off and chases another fantasy rather than going back to the person that he interacted with that he, he knows that there's something more substantial with. Um, you know, so that's, that's something I've been kind of thinking about lately. Uh, I mean, thinking about all the time, but lately I'm trying to apply to myself better. I've done a good job of stockpiling a bunch of things that I really want to read that I'm excited about. But if all I do is buy them and let them sit there, I'm just chasing the amulet. So I'm trying to trying to go play with my wolf lady. Gotcha. All right, <laughs> cool. All right, let's uh, move on to the next issue, which all is right. Soft Places. And in this one, Marco Polo gets lost and separated from <clears throat> his caravan through the it was a desert of lop and which is an actual desert kind of in the china area and he uh there encounters um i forget his name but it's a guy he's imprisoned with later in life and who has actually helped write his autobiography and this is a, a real person and then they also come across fiddler's green and they have a conversation about how this is a soft place where the world of dreams and the real world kind of blend together. And um, so they kind of talk a little bit and then Marco finds his way back to his caravan. And that's basically the plot. What's kind of weird about this one is that this is one where there wasn't like a a huge plot where Marco Polo doesn't really go on a journey of discovery or learning like happened to Vasily in the previous issue we talked about. It's more of he just has this experience. And um, it doesn't really seem like it changes anything about Marco Polo. He just kind of, I guess, reaffirms what he is interested in and his his thirst for exploration yeah the things that are interesting about this to me uh, also uh rusticello of pisa is his friend uh, uh thank you is one it teases at marco polo should have been lost forever in the soft places when he finds dream dream at first says i can't help you because i'm too weak because this takes place right after he you know regained his uh independence from you know being trapped at the beginning of of the series yeah um but then he kind of takes pity on him and he takes the risk of helping him 
Um, so it kind of hints at like Marco Polo should have been lost forever and we, you know, he never would have been who he was and how would that, you know, potentially have affected the world. I think it's interesting that they really highlight that what makes Marco Polo special is his ability to describe the places he visits uh, and not just, you know, um, formulaically, not just, you know, this place is here, it's this big and those kind of details. But like uh, his friend Rusticello says, um, you know, like the spirit of the place he's able to, to get to. So there's kind of a, a poetry to his exploration, and that's what makes him more substantial and, and, you know, seemingly makes him last through time compared to just other explorers. I love that they interact with Fiddler's Green. So you see, uh, you know, the different elements of Dream interacting in different ways. And, you know, it plays a lot with time and place and stuff like that. Like, we know already Fiddler's Green is a place, but he can just get up and be a person and go take a break from being a place. That's an interesting concept. And then the concept of time where he's like, yeah, you guys are already dead for 700 years by the time I'm right now. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So, like, I, I think there's interesting concepts in this one. It's kind of a nice slow down, quiet moment. I thought it was a little little on the boring side, especially because I was reading late last night trying to get these all read for today. So I was like, oh, why does gotcha. you know, slow story was my favorite thing. Um, but it was it was fine. Uh, a little less interesting, uh, a little just introspective, I guess. But uh, yeah, I didn't think it really had as much to offer um, on first read, at least. But I usually tend to get more when we talk about it. Yeah, I I didn't have uh, a lot that I really got out of this one. I just kind of took this one as an interesting look at here's some elements of Dream all mashed together and kind of here's an interesting thing that can be done and an interesting story that can be told now that I've established all these things about my universe and mythology of Dream and the Dreaming. So it seems like it's kind of an interesting, hey, this would be neat if kind of thing. Yeah. I think that the concept of soft places and kind of what Fiddler Green represents here is the need sometimes to just separate from everything, to kind of disappear in the seams of life and just have that like kind of break from everything. Hmm. Um, and I think that's something that, uh, you know, I've recognized myself, like my soft places in life are when sometimes I can leave work a little early, maybe, and I don't have to be home, you know, I'm not expected home by a certain time, and I have that little bit of space in between that I could just go and stop somewhere, and just, like, nobody has an expectation of me for a little bit, you know? Yeah. Having those moments to just, like, I don't have to be somewhere, and I can just take this little break, I have no responsibility to anybody at the moment, especially as we gain more responsibilities in life, um, like, taking those breaks, not being tied down to everything, I think, like, one thing that's really applicable now that wasn't back when this was written uh, is with social media, I've seen people, and I mean, I felt it before myself too, where it's like, you feel like you owe everybody your attention because they message you or they, whatever. It's like, you have to go onto Facebook and like everybody's posts, or if somebody sends you a message, you have to respond right away. And that's not how it is. And yeah. I think, you know, this mentality of soft places, like, I don't think the story was the most exciting, but you know, this mentality of of soft places kind of is a good thing to reflect on and think about we don't owe everybody every moment of our time and we need these times in between that nobody gets us 
That is a really nice interpretation. And that's something that I don't think would have had as much meaning to me when I was first reading this 20, 25 years ago. Yeah. And, but now it, it is a lot more relevant and resonant. I enjoyed this story a lot more than I remembered enjoying it. It, like you said, is just kind of more of a, uh, let me just hang out in this experience and soak it in. And I had the luxury of, I was reading this yesterday evening after finishing up work. I had popped open a bottle of wine and was kicking back and drink, sipping a little wine and reading my Sandman like a pretentious doof. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> but I was able to like take it nice and slowly and I didn't feel rushed or anything like that. And under that, uh, those kind of, um, uh, that condition, I, really enjoyed it because it was just a nice fun experience in dreaming one thing i notice here is that uh, neil gaiman seems very interested in historical people that remain remembered and that's uh, one thing i noticed with this marco polo is a name that everyone knows right almost everybody knows the name marco polo even though he lived uh, it was seven to eight hundred years ago or so, and somehow this name Marco Polo has remained resonant throughout history. Well, Same with he like, has his own swimming pool game. I mean, well, yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> <laughs> and but similar, we've seen um, stories about with like with Shakespeare. Shakespeare is somebody who's probably the most remembered author of all time at this point. Like, I. I can't think of anybody who, except maybe like, uh, uh, what's his name? The guy who wrote like the Odyssey and the Iliad, you know, it's like, he's, he's that level of remembered, uh, as an author and, uh, Homer, there we go. And shows how, how well I remember. I mean, but, he got his, yeah. his own cartoon family eventually. So. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but he does seem interested in, what makes these people so well remembered and what is it about them? And I think he's Charlie saying something about it's, well, it's the stories about these people that makes them important. And the reason why we still remember them so many hundreds of years later. Yeah. And I, you know, that that's key to all of what Sandman is. And I think that that's why you know, his use of those is important. And I don't know if it's that, I mean, it could very well be, but I, I don't know if it's that Neil Gaiman is fascinated with those people or just that that's a good vehicle to to do what he's doing. The last story we talk about in this, um, I think, is really centered on that, too, about, you know, why do we remember stuff? You know, why is stuff important to be remembered? What deserves to be remembered? That kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's like, one, it's kind of fun to take a historical figure, whether it be real or legend or whatever, and take it out of the context of what we know it as. So, like, he's taking Marco Polo out of... And honestly, like... I know very little about Marco Polo, but I know who he is. I know he's Marco Polo. I know he was an explorer. That's all I really know, to be honest, off the top of my head. Yeah, same here. One, we get taught a little bit. Uh, but two, taking him out of the context of whatever he was, and all right, here he's in Dream, and he's interacting with these other characters, and we can play with it and still illustrate the same point. And it's not like 
It's not like it's belittling or uh, margin. It's not minimizing what he actually was. And it's also using in a way that what, what he actually was isn't important to the story as much as showing that what everybody was isn't as important as what's remembered. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really interesting how all these things kind of tie in together and whatever you like the best, whether it be getting hit, you know, if you like historical stories being brought into stuff because you like learning about history, whether you don't give two craps about history, but you're like, oh, I know who this person is vaguely, and now they're in my story. That's interesting. You know, it's like there's so many different dynamics that can give you a way to connect with this. It's a fun thing to play with, I think. It's kind of like, uh, you know, seeing your favorite superhero characters out of the context of their normal story, either in somebody else's story or in a completely different world, you know? This is like mm-hmm. the, the Elseworlds of hist- history, I guess. History, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense, yeah. The one last thing I want to point out about this story is that Fiddler's Green mentions that uh, Morpheus is just walking around with his new girlfriend all the time, and it's so annoying. Yeah. And this is the first hint of what is actually a pretty major plot point that is actually hidden and behind the scenes, which is that Morpheus is in the middle of some love affair, and we don't ever actually see that happen on page. We only see the people's hinted reactions to it in this story, and there's a hint to it in the next story. And then we see the fallout from it in the very beginning of the next long story arc. Interesting. I was kind of wondering, because obviously I picked up that hint, but didn't know if it was... Because with this taking place in a kind of nondescript period of time, and... Um, you know, obviously time, like there are elements coming from different time periods in this. I didn't know if it was referring to something we knew, um, like his, uh, you know, I'm bad with names. Um, the, the woman or the woman that he like cast into hell because she denied him. Nada. Nada. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I didn't know if it was referring to that or one of the other ones that we've seen, uh, hints of or whatnot. Um, but yeah, so that's actually interesting. And I kind of figured, like, okay, this is going to get cleared up at some point unless it's just referring to something that's already passed, which kind of doesn't really matter that much, I guess. It's not cleared up too much. The only real hint that we get that of when it takes place is that Fiddler's Green says something along the lines of, you've been dead for 700 years from my timeline. And I think he maybe even says, like, it's 1992 yeah. where, where I am, which would be when this book was being published. So... Yeah. If you were reading this as it was coming out, you would know that, okay, Fiddler's Green is coming from our current present as a reader of the story. Yeah. yeah and I, I wasn't sure if his reference was something that had already taken place for him. But then yeah. also the way he represents it makes it sound like he's less infinite than some things are. You know, like his, his timeline doesn't go forever in either direction either. Well, it's what's interesting about all this is basically what we find out is that there, Morpheus has a big love affair with somebody between a game of you and brief lives that we never actually see. We just see hints of it and the fallout of it. So I just wanted to point that out. It's the only really kind of like plotty bit in this. So yeah. there's that. Interesting. Yeah. All right. So the next story is A Parliament of Rooks. And in this one, um, Daniel Hall, who is still a baby, 
enters into the world of dream and goes to the house of secrets or house of mystery. I forget which one is Cain's and which one is Abel's, but he's in one of those and everybody takes turns telling a story. And then at the end of it, after they've told their stories, Daniel goes back to the real world and wakes up from his nap. That's basically it. So first question, Daniel Hall, is he somebody significant? Extremely significant. Have we seen him yet? Yes. So this goes back to Doll's house. Uh, So Lita Hall was the wife of Hector Hall, that like the Sandman character who was the superhero Sandman. And she was pregnant that whole time. And at the end of that, after she is released from the dream, the, the little dream bubble that was created by Brute and Glob, uh, Morpheus says to her, this baby has been gestating within you, within dreams, and therefore he belongs to me. And someday I'm going to come and take him because he belongs to me. And then that's when Lita Hall says, like, over my dead body, you tall, skinny creep. Or something like that. So, uh, very much like, yes, he, uh, Daniel's very important because he is that baby that um, that was gestated within the dreams for so long. Yeah, you know, it's, it's so funny the way Sandman plays out. Like, I, I didn't remember that because it's been too long since I've read it. I mean, she says her name in this, um, but there's no specific reference to, like, clearly show you what this is. So, like, as yeah. a reader, it's very easy to get lost in it and then to make those connections later. And, yeah, I mean, that definitely creates a different picture and also makes it make more sense how Daniel is able to go into dream and, like, he's clearly doing more than just dreaming. You know, he's mm-hmm. he's in dream and interacting in a different way. Yeah. Yeah, he's he's very much it's not just that he's dreaming and his dreaming mind is in the world of dreams. It's he's actually like going into dream and interacting with all the people that live within dreams as if he was a dream himself. Yeah. Yeah. So the three stories that we get, is it three? Yeah. Uh, Yeah, we get uh, the Eve's story, which is basically the story of the three Eve's. We get. uh Cain's, yeah, we get Cain's story, which is the Parliament of Rooks, which is what this the name of this story is named for. And then we get Abel's story, which is basically the happy version of the Cain and Abel story, which is actually very sad, as we know. Or maybe tragic is a better way to put it. So uh, I thought that it was interesting that these stories are very mythology driven because there are like hints of these three eves i think deep in uh, esoteric hebrew literature and ancient christian writings and stuff like that so this this is stuff that isn't just being made up for this it's stuff that has its roots within uh, actual writings actual like uh, religious documents and stuff the Cain and Abel story is kind of, it's funny. I, I love how it's portrayed as this cutesy wootsy um, uh, version of it where they're all like cute little kids and there's cute little Sandman and cute little death hanging out together. 
and it all ends up a very cute, happy ending with the two brothers that get to live next to each other forever and ever. Um, even though we know the real story of Cain and Abel is one of those very um, archetypal stories from the Bible about, I guess, jealousy yeah. and you know coveting the act what others have and um and about that like original violence you know human on human violence so and that's kind of like the the original the original violent death in christian uh mythology yeah so I mean a, a lot of this one I I felt like it was just kind of like a, a fun adventure in in dream time. It's kind of similar to the previous story in that it, it didn't have a lot of um stuff to it is more of like a let's just take a trip into dreams and and have some fun with expanding on some of these what we've seen as minor characters in the past and let them take center stage. Yeah, looking at these three stories, I think that the Parliament of Rooks story was the most interesting one just to hear as a story, or to read as a story. Um, the one about the three eaves was the most just, like, kind of informative of a story that, like, wasn't really the most entertaining thing to read. And then the, uh, you know, Abel's story about the, you know, the baby murders the you know the baby can enable story is like cute but it's it's also a story that like even in sandman we've heard over and over um so it's kind of like it's more of an insight into abel's perspective on things i think the real meaning in this issue comes from the end when kane kills abel again mm-hmm. and is basically like you know it ends with abel telling the the secret giving away the mystery to kane's story you know, and then Kane makes the point that, um, you know, the answer to the mystery is is basically worthless. It's the mystery itself that is the has the value. So it's just like it's once again instructive of stories. Yeah, though it's funny seeing that here because after experiencing J.J. Abrams creating Star Wars movies, I kind of call BS on that. <laughs> like the mystery isn't necessarily the the fun part because when you create mystery for no reason where there is no answer to the mystery it just is creating gobbledygook that doesn't lead anywhere and has no meaning it a mystery only has meaning when there's an answer to the mystery yeah but then getting the answer like i'll, I'll give a, another movie reference to be the antithesis of that um m night Shyamalan. every single m night Shyamalan movie Oh, this is so good. Oh, that's what it is. I never want to watch this again. <laughs> sure. Okay. Uh-huh. And then as his movies went on, they got worse and worse. Like, it was a fake monster. But it is always satisfying, I feel like, when you get that answer. I feel you like know? he's a good example where his mysteries got less and less satisfying. Because sure. you knew that the, the answer to the mystery was going to be insubstantial. And a mystery can be better without an answer because then you have to think about the story. But that is still like your point is still very valid, too, that uh, a mystery that has no answer to it. It's it's like, uh, you know, creating a, a mathematical formula that when you solve it, there's there's no solution to it. 
because it's not a proper formula. You know, it's like it, it it still it ruins the mystery when you like get you know you figure out as much as you can about it, you're like this just doesn't make any sense. What's weird about this is that when Abel shouts out the answer to the mystery of the Parliament of Rooks, my experience as a reader is, oh, that's so great. <laughs> like, you know, it was very satisfying to get that answer to the mystery. So in in a, it, my experience reading the story was totally counter to what Cain is saying about it, in that I got a lot out of the the answer. I think that if the answer to the mystery was something like it's meaningless, you know, it's just a weird quirk of nature and it has no meaning to why the rooks do this, then that would have been a message that sometimes mysteries aren't exciting to know the answer to. But for this one, I actually was like, wow, that's really cool. Yeah. That's I, a really satisfying answer to that mystery. I think it's, it's kind of like the exception that proves the rule. Cause I agree too. Like, I think that was a very interesting answer to that, but then we can talk about other mysteries like, uh, you know, M night Shyamalan's glasses of water being left around kills aliens. Um, mm, you yeah, know, different sure. stuff like that. You're like, all right, that kind of, uh, you know, ruined that mystique. Um, but yeah, yeah, I mean, there's always going to be the exception that proves the rule where you're like, wow, that's, that's just as interesting knowing every detail about it as it would be not knowing it. But yeah. I mean, ultimately I think it still comes like, uh, when you look at the three different stories and what they do, there's three different types of stories. Kane's is a mystery. Eve's is like, so Eve talks about the three Eve's essentially. Yeah. It's and it's kind of like secret hidden knowledge. Yeah. The, the middle one. So you have the. The, the first Eve, that's Lilith. So you have Lilith, and, um, like, she was literally, like, part of Adam. They were the same. They were split apart. And then, because of the competition, eat. yeah. So because of the competition, like, they, they both wanted their, their, their standing. So Lilith went off on her own, basically. So there's the, there's even standing doesn't work out because like, no, I want to be superior. Then the second mm -hmm. one, there's no mystery to it. Adam wants nothing to do with her. The third one, there's mystery to it. That's the one that works, you know? Mm, so that's interesting. That's kind of illustrating the same thing as the point of these three stories. So you have the three stories. This is the middle of the third stories where everything is laid bare to the stories of Eve uh, and it's also the, like the least appealing story of the three. Interesting. So like, there's a lot of relations going on there. And then the third one is, uh, you know, Kane's story, which is like, you know, cutesifying the, you know, what happened with him. Um, I, I feel like his story is sort of like a misdirection in all of this, or you have like the dichotomy of like, Oh look, everything's great. But then like it cuts to what it's really like. And Kane kills him again. Yeah, it's it's a story of what he hopes for, what he wishes yeah. it was. It's like an aspirational story of I, I I wish that this is the way that it was is what it feels like to me. Yeah. So yeah, I think when you look at like all the different things, like uh, you know, we talk about mystery and is is mystery the best part? Yeah, I think Kane's story is a good example of where mystery makes it good, but then knowing the answer to the mystery isn't bad in that case. But then Eve's story shows that Kane's story is the exception to the rule where when you lay bare all the mystery, you don't like, you know, you're not going to leave reading this being like, Oh man, I'm going to reflect on Eve's story a whole bunch. Mm -hmm. It's the one that like, you just kind of leave feeling uncomfortable, 
you know, it's like, okay, I guess, I guess that's how that works out. I don't need to think about that anymore. So one last thing I want to point out about this story is once again, we get, I think Matthew, the Raven, he points out this love affair that's going on where he's like, ugh, all he does is like hang out with her all the time. And it's so lame. (laughs) (laughs) And so it's just another hint uh, that this is going on in the background. Then we're not seeing it. And interestingly, Morpheus only shows up in the story within a story. Like uh, a lot of times in these short stories, he shows up in some form and plays some minor but pivotal role. But in this one, he's just not there at all. Yeah, He's only a character within the stories. And that's kind of an interesting thing. This is really just a trip into the dreaming. Okay, let's let's talk about the last one. This is Ramadan. And this was issue 50. It was an oversized issue when it came out. And interestingly enough, this is actually a story in the sequence of the, the Distance Mirrors stories that we talked about a few of our Sandman episodes ago, which was the Thermidor, August, and three Septembers in a January stories. Mm-hmm. This story is actually meant to be part of that, and where each one of those is kind of named after a month, and this is named after the holy month of Ramadan. And so this, I think, was actually intended to be part of that sequence, but it just, the way it worked out, they ended up publishing it, you... you almost 20 issues later as its own standalone story. But in terms of intent, it is part of that sequence of the distant mirrors stories from issues like 30 something around issue 30. Interesting. Yeah. So this story tells the, um, about, Oh man. Uh, his name is, what is his name? Uh, it's like Hashim al-Rahud or something like that. Yeah. I mean, he gives a, it's funny. I'm actually jumping around and there's, I hit the spot where he gives this like massively long version of his name. Um, oh yeah. Uh-huh. Harun al-Rashid. Harun al-Rashid. Yeah. Thank you for looking at that. And he's the King of Baghdad. And this is a, what seems like a mythological version of Baghdad that is full of wonders and progress and delights and is the the type of Baghdad that we would only hear about in stories where there are jinns and flying carpets and all all sorts of various wonders to this world. It really feels like it's a version of Baghdad out of Aladdin or something like that. Mm-hmm. They even kind of hinted that throughout this. Yeah. And the king is troubled because he knows that nothing lasts forever. And he wants this Baghdad to last forever. And so he makes a deal with Morpheus to keep this city forever uh, in dreams so that it will last forever within dreams. And uh, Morpheus accepts the deal. And that's uh, what happens is he wakes up to a old, decrepit version of Baghdad. And then we see later that this story is being told to a young kid. And so they, the young kid keeps the wonder of the uh, mythological Baghdad alive in his eyes as he hears the story. And again, it's kind of this idea of things live on because of the stories we, we tell about them and the way that they exist in stories. And that stories make stuff last forever. Yeah, I had a lot of feelings about this one. 
so first of all, I, I referenced in our, our the first issue we talked about that I, I thought there were some relations between these. In, in the first issue, we talked about um, you know the the guy gets the amulet and is like, "This is what I want." You know, this is this is perfection. And in this one, we see he has what seems like absolute perfection around him, and he's discontent with it. So I think that it's kind of the other side of that coin that like what we think we want isn't often exactly what we want. And we could have everything that we want and be discontent in it because it's more than just attaining something that that makes us happy with what we have. So I, I kind of read it a little differently in that he's not discontent with it. I think he's he's very happy with this Baghdad that he presides over. It's that he's concerned he knows that it will crumble away and turn into dust. Well, that's his discontent at that point, though. He he has all this perfection, so now what he wants is for what is perfect to him to last forever, which he can't sure, have. Yeah, but I, I guess I was just getting at it. He's not like unhappy with the current state of Baghdad. He's he's unhappy with the the realities of time, which will turn it or or take it away. Yeah. So he's presented all these delights that are what represent how great Baghdad is, and he can't enjoy them. Because there's always, you know, like when we have everything we think we want, there's always that thing to, to chase. As, just like in the first story, um, he had the thing to chase with the, the woman on the amulet. And once he got it, he realized that wasn't what he wanted. And in that story, he had at least, you know, he had the sense to go back and realize what really did matter to him and settle into a life that brought him joy. Um, this one, obviously, the story ends ends up going a different direction, and if it didn't end like it did, I probably wouldn't have really cared a lot for this issue, because the other thing, uh, like, I kind of balked at this at first, because, you know, we're being presented with how great Baghdad is, but when you look at all the things that are bringing him great joy, there's no way that brings great joy to all these people around him, and it just, it, it you know, it's really about how subjective that can be, too, so... Baghdad that's being presented to us is this grand and wonderful thing. Like, I'm just looking at how horrific this is to the people around him, and he's he's too obtuse to what his desires are to see what the what everything is actually like. Like, for this Baghdad to be realized, everybody has to be sacrificing everything that they actually want to to you know to give in to his every woman desire to make it happen. And yeah, you know, then we get to the end of it, and we see that this is just a story, and we see that you know Bag- Baghdad how it is now, and then you know we have lots of questions like you know was this always just a story? Did this happen because he made the deal with Dream, and so that changed everything? Um, but yeah, I mean the the first thing that hit me with this was just that like this seems grand, but like when you really look at you know behind the curtains of these grand wonderful things. It's it's not real. Like it can't be real. Like and actually be good for everybody. Like this Baghdad is only good for him. I I do feel like that's like because that's not a reading that I got from it. I I do feel like that's a very much like modern a, a reading of it that is kind of influenced by our modern day, where it's it's very clear that like. Or it's at least it's clear to me that our society has gone in a direction where 
it serves the benefits of the very rich at the expense of the not very rich and it so i i see i see the the parallel i'm i guess i didn't get that out of the reading because i feel like that is not the point he's trying to make in this or but but i think it's there i think he specifically makes the point so i don't think that's the overall point i think that part of the reason it struck me so strong right off the bat just had to do with how i was feeling at the time you know whatever was in my head at the time because i don't think that's Mm. meant to be the overlying point but as he goes into the depths of his palace he shows Uh, the people that he has locked away that maybe he'll you know maybe he'll meet out justice at some point he has the people that he has locked away so long that they're basically dying without ever even being addressed. Um, and he just doesn't care. And then he gets it gets into the deeper secrets and talks about um, the people who built those pathways are all dead because it's not good to know, uh, you know, to know his secrets, basically. So, like, mm-hmm. as he goes deeper and deeper, it's showing the, the further down layers of, of... Of what it's built on. Exactly. It's all built on the suffering of others to prop up the the grand things on top. Um, so I, I think that it's a component of the story. I don't think that's meant to be the overlying part of the story, but I do think it's meant to to illustrate that, like, you know, the grandest of grand things have to come at some cost. Hmm. And, you know, I think that's that's part of what the story is. And when we get to the end of the story and we see Baghdad as it is now, even him making that deal with Dream, I want this to be remembered forever and the way it is is in stories well, did he set up for Baghdad to fall so far to lock the city in a bottle so it could be the story that would last forever? There's two things uh, that I want to touch on that you made me think of. So you you mentioned the question of, did Baghdad used to be this way? Like, did this actually happen where Baghdad was this way and then it was absorbed into dream or not? That reminds me of the Dream of a Thousand Cats story mm-hmm. where the story was it used to be the cats ruled the earth but then the humans dreamed it a different way and it became different and there was always this question of well wait is is that a, a true thing that actually happened or is it just a story and i think that this is similar it's it brings up this question of well was this a true thing or was it just a story and i think that sandman this at work as a whole would argue it doesn't matter yeah. Like what's the, what's the difference? Because no no matter what the the effect in our minds is the same whether it actually happened long ago or it's just a story of something that could have happened. The effect of knowing it and hearing the story is the same regardless of yeah. whether it's true events or not. So there's an example um, too of where if the mystery of that was clarified in this story, it would actually take away from the story. I th- I think it um it, w- yeah it's saying that it doesn't really matter yeah. I think the other thing that this reminded me of is the um the August storyline where Emperor Augustus was kind of facing this decision of do I make the decision that will make Rome last for 10,000 years and grow and conquer the entire world or do I make a decision that will limit what it is and have it eventually then dwindle. And it's interesting that this seems like it is then the a similar question, but on the backside of that decision, where 
okay, we've made Baghdad as great as it can be. Now what do I do? Do I allow it to dwindle from here? Or do I do something to preserve it? It, it kind of seems like it's uh, the, the, that Augustus storyline was looking at this of what happens at the beginning of that opportunity to grow into the greatest city or empire ever. And what do you do once you've achieved that? And so I, I just saw both of the parallels from both of those stories in this. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's one thing that's really been great about talking about these Sandman stories instead of just reading them too, is like a lot of this stuff would have gone over my head because I don't tend to read stuff enough over and over to like start to put those pieces together myself with how distant they are in this series. So like talking about them is pretty cool to like see those correlations and mm-hmm. like ultimately like these stories, when we look at them and I think kind of what purpose they serve, like it's to just like anytime there's, there's these one shot stories, it's not about just telling you an entertaining story. It's about kind of illustrating what matters in storytelling, what might, you know, like this is all about dreams. So what matters in dream? And it all just comes back to that same thing over and over of, you know, it's, it's not about having the answers. It's not about, is this real or not? Like, it's just the story. Yeah, and like it, like having those comparisons that that you just made, just I think further illustrates that. And when you start to put yeah. those pieces together, like it definitely, like you have the 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 core plots of Sandman that take you through the story, but then you see that how through the whole time, how it it keeps on just illustrating that dynamic. It really makes this uh, you know this run of Sandman feel like something grander than just a, a plot. Yeah, I I feel like. I'm getting so much more out of these standalone stories than I ever did when I have read it before by discussing them. Because in a lot of ways, I feel like these standalone stories is where a lot of the real thematic elements and meaning in Sandman are ring true much more than the more plotty, so to speak, stories in here. Yeah. And I know that we have one more batch of the standalone type stories coming up in the World's End arc, which is going to be after the next arc, which is Brief Lives. So I'm really curious to revisit those again now after having gone through and really looked at all these previous one-off stories. So it'll be... I'm looking forward to that discussion and read that reading far more than I've ever really have in the past, which is cool. Yeah. It's, it's interesting for me getting this far too, because we're deep into the stuff I've only ever read once. And it's been a very long time. It's exciting to me to like realize how far I'm progressing through this. And it's like, I already have the fourth hardcover collection. The fifth one is coming out in February and that takes us through the end of Sandman proper and some other materials that I actually remembered back to when um when I read through the first time the last trade or two wasn't part of like the overall plot that we're mentioning like it was you kind of get to the mm-hmm. end and then you have these other things that were collected um, and I remember back then being disappointed it's like you know you when you're looking forward to getting to the 15th trade you want the 15th trade to be that last big punch of the story but it wasn't it was other stuff it wasn't the yeah you know, the, the core plot yeah because the core plot really wraps up at the end of the the published series yeah. with issue 75 so it's really is it was volume 10 that is the final 
punctuation mark on it. And then everything after that's kind of, oh, here's here's some more stuff. Let's just kind of go back to the world of dreaming. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I, like, I only vaguely remember how that all played out. So I'm excited like, kind of to be getting there. Um, I'm interested now in, like I had read Sandman Overture when it came out. But I hadn't read Sandman in a very long time. I'm interested to revisit that after finishing this. Um, Me too. On top of, like, you know, I, I've never read the Death series, the Death materials, um, but I do have them digitally. So, like, uh, that's another thing I'm looking forward to getting into after this that I just, I've had it and kind of had it stuck away. It's one of those things, like, when you own something so you always have access to it, a lot of times you just let it sit there forever. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, this is it's pretty cool to me that we're where we are at. We're well over halfway through well no we're like right about halfway through. we're halfway through yeah yeah mm-hmm. yeah we're just slightly over halfway through and i'm excited for the next one because brief lives is probably my favorite story arc of all of sandman having read the the first issue of it which i like i said i wasn't sure when i was reading it if it was one of the standalone stories or not now i realize that it wasn't um I do recall that as being the best example of why I really dislike despair. <laughs> mm, okay. Um, mm-hmm. There are things in, in that issue that involve despair. Um, it's not even like the, the bigger story that despair is presenting that illustrates what despair is. Um, it's what she's doing to herself in it that yeah. really... Um, made me uncomfortable and not in like a good way feeling uncomfortable like uh thinking about how you know somebody getting everything that they've ever wanted is actually bad for lots of other people that's a good way to feel uncomfortable because it makes you think about your choices mm-hmm. um more like in the way that i felt uncomfortable when i was reading american psycho and quit reading it because it was just disturbing and felt pointlessly disturbing in a way <laughs> yeah so that's definitely one of the points where sandman hits like crosses the my threshold for how much disturbingness i can usually stomach so yeah kind of uncomfortable in the way that the um uh calliope story was uncomfortable about the the muse that was locked up yeah in that guy's basement dungeon for however many years yeah Okay, well, uh, I guess we'll we'll get to it next time. I probably not going to be the next episode we do after this, <laughs> but uh, we'll get to it uh, hopefully fairly soon. Yeah, it's been good talking to you about some Sandman. Good doing Definitely. some uh, some binge reading last night to get ready for this. Good job. Me too. All right. Well, until next time, uh, you can find my friend Paul here at Who's Paul on Twitter, and you can find me on Twitter at Bad Deacon and that is about it for now if you found this episode you know where to find more just at the same place so we'll talk to you again soon